as the kiddos are making their way out, would you pray with me for just a moment? Our Father, we come now to the pinnacle of Christian worship, and that is when we open the Word of God, when we see what you would have for us, Lord, in your holy, inspired, inerrant, perfect Word. Every letter, every comma, every word, every phrase, perfectly constructed from the mind of the Holy Spirit to the pages of our Bible. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning we would come to your word with a sense of awe, with a sense of humility, with a sense of submission, as we look to see what the Lord Jesus himself would say to us. Lord, drive the nails of these truths deeply into our hearts such that we will never be the same. We pray in Christ's name, amen. King David had many sons. His third son, Absalom, was trouble. And he was attempting a coup, a takeover of the throne of Israel. David and a small army of his followers had fled Jerusalem. David's life was in danger. The kingdom of Israel was in danger. The covenant promises of God seemed to be in danger. David had been humiliated by Absalom in multiple ways, including lies and false rumors, anything to humiliate his father. David's in distress, and and this brings up lots of questions. During this crisis, are the promises of God to establish his kingdom done? Will David die as an outcast from his own people? And will his final legacy be that his people believed the lies of his son Absalom? Will that be what his final memory is? Well, in Psalm 4, David is expressing his heart to the Lord concerning this situation. And at the writing of Psalm 4, it's, it's nighttime, it's evening, it's late. It's that time when our thoughts race and our anxiety overwhelms us, when the darkness seems darker and the light seems impossibly far away. And, and when anxiety overtakes you, what's that thing that you desperately need at night, but you can't get any of it? Is sleep. But after crying out to the Lord in his distress, after making a a pronouncement of faith, a declaration that he will trust the Lord, a tangible result of the internal joy that he had in the Lord, he says at the conclusion of Psalm 4, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And this peace is the classic and well-known shalom peace, so richly seen in the New Testament, Old Testament rather, 230 times. Uh, The meaning of shalom would take days to really exhaust, but just to give you a little taste, it can be used to speak of peaceful relations with another person, that there exists a, a state of peace and harmony between two parties. It's used to speak of an internal state of well-being, an internal state of of satisfaction. It's used in the Old Testament to speak of being safe and protected and out of harm's way. It's used to speak in general of just anything that's complete, that's finished. It's used, as it is even today among Jews and in Israel, as a greeting. You're, You're blessing the one that you are addressing, and it's also used to say goodbye. Go in peace. Shalom. It's used to speak of physical health, that in the Old Testament, when you inquired about somebody's peace, you're asking if they're well. It's used to speak in general of friendship. 
And shalom, peace, is used as a general blessing on God's covenant people. And how ironic that it was that David's son Absalom, whose name mockingly means father of peace, Ab Shalom, he brought a decided lack of shalom into David's life, and yet David sought and he found peace in the Lord. Peace such that he could lie down and sleep when his very life was in danger. The Old Testament is filled with richness and with variety when it comes to the idea of peace. But despite that richness of peace, that sense that all is well because God is in control, despite the richness of what the Old Testament teaches, the Lord Jesus Christ elevates this idea of peace beyond anything the Old Testament saint could have ever imagined. Because the peace that Christ promised was peace given through the very indwelling presence of God himself. The Holy Spirit taking up residence in the one who would place his faith in Christ. So let's work our way to the treasures of peace that the Lord Jesus has for us. We've enjoyed a a rich time in, in the last few weeks in John 13 and 14 in what is commonly called the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse of Jesus. He's just hours from his arrest, his trials, his suffering on the cross. And now he's leaving his disciples with vital, important key information for them. What he's doing is preparing them for life without his physical presence and for the gospel ministry, which they'll carry on after his departure into heaven. And so in these amazing and really comforting words of Jesus, he's given the disciples principles, which we've outlined in the past weeks as the triumphant Christian life. Now, what is the triumphant Christian life? Well, we've defined it as a life intentionally filled with certain elements of spiritual victory, certain pieces of the puzzle that create a picture of triumph. And so we're closing out this series today, so I want to go back and recap where we've been. We've examined these elements of the triumphant Christian life. First, we looked at a confession-filled life. That if we're to live continually in close examination of our lives and regularly confessing sin to the Lord, that creates triumph, that creates victory. We're keeping our covenant fellowship with God in good shape. It's also a humility-filled life. The humility-filled life says that we're not to think more of ourselves than we ought, that we're to be foot washers of one another. We're eager to serve, we're eager to be last, we're eager to go unnoticed if necessary. The triumphant Christian life is also a gratitude-filled life. We looked at the tragic story of, of Judas, and we were reminded that if it weren't for the grace of God, we would be the ones who had rebelled and rejected. We would be the Judas of the Bible, that it's by grace alone that we are saved and that we should produce a life of thankfulness for salvation, for every attendant blessing that God gives each and every day. We saw also that the triumphant Christian life is a church-filled life, a life filled with one another. Jesus gave a very clear command that we're to love one another, and this happens most meaningfully, most effectively in the context of the local church body which we commit ourselves to. It's also a submission-filled life. Jesus defined being a Christian as one who lays down his life for Christ. Not to earn salvation, but because of salvation and the result of laying down our own lives is that we submit to all authority that the Lord has commanded in our lives. The triumphant Christian life we also saw, sixth, was a a hope-filled life. 
The beginning of chapter 14, Jesus gave the hope of our future heavenly inheritance. And we looked in in great detail at what it means to have what we call in times hope or eschatological hope, which is so helpful and so encouraging because we can think beyond our normal circumstances, beyond today and into eternity, into the next age. We saw that it's also a God-filled life. Jesus made it very clear that if you know Christ, then you have seen the Father, that to know Jesus is to know God. And so we examined all the glorious aspects of Christ presented in chapter 14, verses 5 through 11. We saw also that the triumphant Christian life is an impact-filled life. Jesus said that the disciples, and by extension us, would do greater works than he did. And we explained this dynamic and made the case that we were saved in order to do kingdom tasks. That's why we're here. There's no other reason. And all this is to the glory of God. And then last time we looked at the fact that the triumphant Christian life is a spirit-filled life. A spirit-filled life. We looked at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which the disciples were to anticipate coming at Pentecost, and which we now enjoy. The Spirit of God, who is our parakletos, the, the helper, the Spirit of truth. And so today, we'd like to close out this series in John 13 and 14. Really, the one I've been looking forward to more than any of them. I want to talk about the final element of the triumphant Christian life, a peace-filled life. A peace-filled life. If you haven't done so already, would you turn to John 14, and we'll look at the last six or seven verses, beginning in verse 25. John 14, 25. And we'll savor these warm and encouraging words from our Savior together. John 14, beginning in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Well, what I'd like to do this morning in this text, which, by the way, doesn't matter to you, it matters to me, contains my favorite verse in the entire Bible, John fourteen twenty seven. But what I want to do is build on the theme which King David gave us concerning peace. That when in the dark watches of the night, your, your heart is overwhelmed, And you have sorrow, you have anxiety. When David had this, he cried out to the Lord, and he was reminded that by trusting his God, he could sleep. That in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And so I want to build on that theme and just construct six elements of what we might call a metaphorical, peaceful night's sleep. When you've placed your faith and your hope and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and His saving work to redeem you from your sin, you get to have this. This is yours. So the first element of a peaceful night's sleep we'll call blissful thoughts. Blissful thoughts. 
Now, in our house, and probably yours, as we close the evening down, we want to create an atmosphere of peacefulness and rest. We're turning our lights down. We're quieter. We're, we're settling in. I have this, this giant 10 million watt spotlight in my garage. I don't turn it on. Those things go off. And as you settle in and as things get quieter, it's in those moments, and you've all experienced this, that's the moment when your thoughts can begin to scream at you and begin to yell at you. And you can't turn them off because there's no more distractions. The TV is off. The, the dishwasher may be running quietly in the background, but there's no lights and there's no conversation and there's nothing but you and your mind. And at that moment, sometimes worry and anxiety might be at its fiercest Now, having just promised the coming of the Holy Spirit to be their helper, the Spirit of truth, Jesus makes this astounding promise to his disciples. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, verse 25, Jesus is simply saying that he's been teaching them lofty and heavenly truths while he's been with the disciples specifically speaking of this evening and generally speaking of his whole ministry with them, but he says that he has spoken these things. This is a perfect verb. It it indicates completion, that he's just about done. He's completed. He's consummated his teaching on earth. But now, in verse 26, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. He'll request that the Father send the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God will teach the disciples specifically by reminding them of everything Jesus said to them. And we've already seen two examples of this in John's gospel. Remembering that John wrote this gospel 50 years after the events recorded, John inserts a couple of little footnotes about this particular promise being fulfilled in the life of the disciples. Uh, The first one, John, Jesus rather predicted his death and his resurrection in John chapter 2, and he used the metaphor of the temple. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, the disciples never fully understood that. They they were dull. They were misty in their understanding. They never grasped this. They never understood what was going on concerning the death and resurrection of Christ. But John 2.22 says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Another instance, when Jesus rode to Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey and those who recognized him as king were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. John twelve sixteen reveals, quote, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, one of the primary functions of the Spirit of God is to teach. And this particular promise was a unique empowerment to the disciples who were actual witnesses to, actual listeners to all that Jesus taught. So we might ask the question, when he says he will teach you all things, how do we identify the all things that the Spirit would teach them? Some have argued that this encompasses both the teaching of Jesus and new teaching through new revelation, and others say this is restricted to only that which they heard Jesus teach. 
The all things does emphasize what Jesus taught. The Greek is emphatic. In Greek, it would say, all that I myself have said to you, very clearly speaking of his own teaching. And certainly the Gospels don't contain everything that Jesus taught the disciples. They had three and a half years together, and we get the portion of Jesus' teaching that the Holy Spirit inspired for recording in the Gospels. But the main important point is that Jesus is promising something. He's promising divine inspiration to the apostles. The Holy Spirit would grant to them the ability to record the inspired words of Christ himself, the apostles, and a couple of men commissioned by and and approved by the apostles. They gave us that divinely inspired truth known to us now as the New Testament. And so it's safe to say that the apostles remembered all that Jesus taught, that, and that in the recorded writings of the apostles, we have much of the other content which Jesus taught them but isn't recorded in the Gospels. Now, why do we have things that, from Peter that aren't in the Gospels? There are probably things that Jesus taught Peter and taught the, the disciples that weren't recorded in the Gospels but are brought to their memory later. The writers of the New Testament boldly make this claim of inspired text in numerous places. And you're familiar with this. Paul wrote... In 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Older translations say inspired by God, after which we've named the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. But that's somewhat of a misnomer because it technically means to breathe in. It's more accurate to say that the Word of God has been breathed out by God. Peter outlines this inspiration in his own inspired text of 2 Peter 1. Beginning in verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter also vouched for the writings of the latecomer, Paul, as inspired. In 2 Peter 3, he spoke of Paul's writings as Scripture, And the Apostle Paul himself claimed inspired writing in 1 Corinthians 2.13. We impart this in in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Meaning that the writings were inspired, not necessarily the writer. But the writings are inspired. And this scripture, this inspiration would have an end point. There There is an ending, a finality to it. Jude verse 3 says that our faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. It's done. It's finished. We have a completed Bible. Now, what is our attitude to be toward the truth of God, toward this word that is so helpful to us? First Chronicles 28 records an interesting little incident here. An elderly King David is commissioning his son Solomon to build the temple of God. And he gathers all the officials of Israel, all the administrators, all the tribal representatives, the entire military. And this big group of leaders is all gathered together. And he addresses them, explaining that it was to Solomon that God was giving the charge to build the temple. But before giving Solomon the charge to build the temple, he gave this injunction, this charge to the leadership of Israel. He said in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 8, Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, Observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God 
that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. Observe, that's, that's obvious, we understand that. But the second command, to seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God. This is a, a rich word, it means to search, it means to inquire, it means to question, it means to leave no stone unturned. It has the idea of seeking out God's word with care and with determination. Psalm 119 uses that same verb five times, that the one who seeks out with diligence the word of God is blessed and cared for and cherished by the Lord. This isn't a difficult concept. If you want your mind to be characterized by peaceful and tranquil thoughts, then seeking out must be your attitude toward the Scriptures. If your Bible reading and study of the Word is nothing more than just another New Year's resolution that didn't go very well, then can I just ask you a really simple question? What level of peace would you like to walk through this life with? It's that simple. By the way, we love the theologies that teach us about the Bible. There are no promises about theologies. There are only promises about the Bible. Read the Bible. The blissful thoughts that come as a result of being saturated in the thoughts of God, they come naturally. And now you're bolstered, you're, you're muscular in the, in the Word of God. And when those, those thoughts that want to overwhelm you start to come over you, you have tools, you have weapons, and they come naturally. You should be such, uh, such Bible students that when the negative thoughts come, the, the verses that fight them back naturally come to you. That when you are, you are afraid, you remember that perfect love casts out all fear. And that when you are fearful, uh, you understand that there is no fear in being in the Lord. That the Lord is my shepherd. When you're afraid that you won't have all that you need, I shall not want. And the Bible just flows in defense of those terrible thoughts. And these blissful thoughts will come as a result of being saturated in the thoughts of God as revealed in Scripture. Look, if you're going to war, you want to bring a pocket knife or you want to bring a nuclear bomb, arm yourself with the Word. The first element of the metaphorical peaceful night's sleep, blissful thoughts in the Word of God promised to the disciples and we now have in our New Testament. Here's the second element of the peaceful night's sleep. A comfortable bed. A comfortable bed. I still remember the bed that I used to sleep in when I visited my grandparents in Washington State when I was a little kid. I could picture it today like I slept on it last night. It had a beautiful quilt on it, purple and pink. It was a little bit girly, but I still remember how comfortable it was. Feather pillows, those kind of pillows where you can have eight of them stacked and you still sink to the very bottom. The sheets had a very distinctive flowery scent to them. And and for some reason, crawling into that bed to sleep caused such a feeling of safety and comfort to come over me that I can picture it to this day. And as a bonus, the bed always came with my grandmother's goodnight hugs, kisses, and prayers and songs. She would sing songs to me. She taught me a song to memorize, Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2, that I can still sing today. It was a comfortable bed. And what's the comfort and the safety and the security that Jesus gives to the believer in Christ? Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. 
My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's significant that Jesus repeats the word peace. It's almost like a lullaby in which the same words are repeated over and over again for the comfort of the child. This word for peace is the Greek word erene. It's a, it speaks of peace that's undisturbed, it's tranquil. There's an internal quietness, there's a rest it's a very common word in the New Testament. It's used almost a hundred times, and we see it in every New Testament book except First John, and most often in the Gospels, 25 times in the Gospels. It was a word that Jesus used to proclaim the validity of a person's salvation. In Luke 8, 48, the woman whom Jesus healed of 12 years of bleeding was sent off by Jesus with a blessing. He said, Daughter, your faith has made you well, literally saved you. Go in what? Peace. He confirmed her salvation. The Apostle Paul wished peace on his readers at the beginning of every single letter that he wrote. In fact, using almost the exact same wording every time. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the early 1900s, the English version of Irene, Irene was one of the most popular girls' names. This year, it's 799th in popularity, but I hope it makes a comeback because it's a, it's a great name. It's a marvelous legacy, and it's, a, it's one of the few gifts that the Lord Jesus left behind when he ascended into heaven. And look what he does. He, he doesn't just say, I, I hope you have peace. He gets very specific. First of all, he promises the disciples that he's leaving peace with them. Now, the obvious implication from the surrounding context of this whole passage is that this peace is given by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That, that's the main issue here. And we know from Galatians 5 that one of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. He's leaving peace with them. Now, this word leaving, it has the idea of permitting something to stay in its place. The peace which they had when they walked alongside the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like to have some little nagging worry come into your mind and literally be able to say, Hey, Jesus, can you help me with this? At any time. And he said, That's the peace I'm leaving with you. It's the same thing. But not only is he leaving peace with them, he says he's giving peace to them. This is the idea of bequeathing something, of giving something that used to be his and now it's theirs. It's a peace which belongs to him. It characterizes him. And now they have access to that same limitless peace which the Lord himself enjoys at all times. And then because of the certainty of the peace of Christ, that he's leaving it with them, he's giving it to them, he actually attaches two commands to this gift of peace. And he doesn't use the type of Greek verb which expresses a hope or a wish. He doesn't say, I really hope that your hearts are not troubled or afraid. He doesn't say, may your hearts not be troubled or afraid. Instead, he uses the imperative form, a command. Let not or do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's a command. Now, there's two slightly different nuances to this command. Don't let them be troubled a word that means stirred up or distressed or agitated it's not an inherently wrong feeling in fact it's the same word used to describe jesus in john eleven thirty three, when he saw mary the sister of lazarus weeping 
But in this context, the context of the coming departure of Jesus, he's commanding them, don't be agitated by this. Don't be distressed. Don't be troubled. And then he says, let not your hearts be afraid or fearful. This is a little more specific. This means don't be cowards. There's no other meaning for it. That's all it means. Don't be cowardly. Don't lack courage. Don't be timid. You notice something, by the way? He's not saying, I'll pray for your courage. He's saying, be courageous. Be courageous. Why? Because you already have the peace. You already have all the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You have love. You have joy. You have peace. You have patience. You have kindness. You have goodness. You have faithfulness. You have gentleness. You have self-control. Take the tools and use them. This is what he's saying. And just from this verse and from the surrounding context, we could define some of the qualities of the peace of Christ. I know it seems elusive, so let's nail it down. What are the qualities of the peace of Christ that softness and that comfort of the bed in which the peaceful Christian gets a good night's sleep? Well, let's just list a few. Qualities of the peace of Christ. First of all, it's, it's not of this world. It's not of this world. There's, there's nothing in this world that can remotely imitate the peace of Christ. A 12-hour-long Netflix-a-thon can't do it. Alcohol can't do it. Drugs can't do it. Relationships can't do it. There's nothing that is remotely similar to the peace of Christ. It's based on the salvation we have from sin given by Christ and, and the resulting indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The world can't possibly hope to replicate that. Not, not even close. Because the peace that Christ is offering is quite literally sent from heaven. And there is no earthly substitute. There is no earthly uh, kind of correlation. It's not of this world. Here's another quality of the peace of Christ. It's not based in outward circumstances. It's not based in outward circumstances. The irony here is unbelievable. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What's about to happen to Jesus? He's about to be arrested. He's about to be tortured, beaten, put on a cross, and put to death. And by the way, Jesus is about to remind his followers Chapter 15, the world hates them. Chapter 16, they'll face afflictions and suffering. And yet he's leaving them with peace. Another quality of the peace of Christ, it's based in Christ's victory. It's based in Christ's victory. The very last verse of John 16. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Try telling that to the prosperity gospel guys. They, they don't understand that. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is like watching a recording of a game and you know your team is going to win and yet you get nervous when they're behind. We already know what happens. Christ has won and so have we. Peace is also composure in the midst of trials. It's composure in the midst of trials. It's not the absence of fearful conditions. It's just the absence of fear. The strength to be faithful in the middle of these conditions. Lately, we've read about shark attacks happening in various parts of the world. Reason number 77, I don't swim in the ocean, but that's a personal decision. But have you ever been wading in the, at the beach in two inches of water and some little piece of seaweed comes up against you and you think that the monster from the deep has come to get you? And then you look down and it's some little squiggly thing that's two inches long. And you feel ridiculous. 
right? Especially if you scream like a girl and you're a man. Peace is composure in the midst of trials. That whether it's the seaweed or the monster, it doesn't matter. And finally, the peace that Christ gives is based in a guaranteed future. It's based in a guaranteed future. Do you notice the phrase that he used? Let not your hearts be troubled. This forms what you might call literary bookends back to the exact phrase in chapter 14, verse 1, concerning the guaranteed heavenly destiny of the disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, I, I speak to a lot of you, and, and I know what goes on in some of your lives. And You might say, I, I've lost my peace. I'm the poster child for anxiety and worry. Can I just say this? Don't fret. The peace of Christ is still there for you. How do you get it? You ready for this? This is profound. Ask. Ask. You know these promises. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You pour out every worry and every concern to the Lord and then you settle in to that comfortable bed of the peace of Christ. There's a third element of the metaphorical peaceful night's sleep. We'll call these sweet dreams. Sweet dreams. You don't ever tuck in your child and say, I hope you have the worst nightmare of your life tonight. What do you say? You say, sweet dreams. What are the sweet dreams which Christ promises? Well, let's work our way toward those sweet dreams. Verse 28. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Skipping ahead to verse 29 for a moment. Once again, Jesus is telling them something before it happens so that they'll have confidence in him. They'll they'll believe all that he said. Jesus made many predictions which came true to increase their faith. He predicted his death and resurrection. He predicted the coming destruction of Jerusalem. He predicted the coming of the Holy Spirit. He predicted that the rooster would crow when Peter denied Christ. He predicted the presence of a betrayer among them. And he predicted who that betrayer actually was. And now he's asserting that when the Holy Spirit comes and the disciples have this tremendous heavenly peace that it will simply be as he predicted. But in verse 28, he says something that sounds almost insulting, that they would have rejoiced at the news that Jesus was going away to the Father, if you loved me. That's a pretty direct jab. It's not really that black and white, though. Jesus has already said that they belong to him. John 13, verse 10, he said, you are clean. They're his. But their love isn't yet developed enough to rejoice that he's going to the Father. They're mostly focused on themselves and the loss that they're experiencing, much as an infant does truly love its mother, but the love is purely self-seeking. It's just not developed yet. And so Jesus gives his reasons that, his reason that they should rejoice for him. He says, The Father is greater than I. 
Now, obviously, this is a surprising statement to us in light of the deity of Christ, since we know from countless other scriptures that Jesus claims to be equal in essence, equal in radiance, equal in attributes to God. And so we can quickly eliminate the possibility that he's saying that he's somehow less than God the Father. But what's the focus right now? The the focus here in this text is on the humiliation of the Son here in this earthly life. By the way, his humiliation will, in his death, reach both its height and its end point. And so the Father and Son are equal in essence, equal in attributes, but there are certain truths of the Father and Son which can't be reversed. They can't be flexed. The Father sent the Son, not the Son sending the Father. John 3.16, the son does what he sees his father doing. John 5.19, it's not that the father does what he sees his son doing. The son does the works of the father, John 5.36. The son speaks the words of the father, John 14.24. So in this sense of what theologians call functional subordination, the father's priority is unquestionable. The son is submitting himself to the father, not the other way around. But the subordination of Jesus to the Father in no way lessens his, his perfection, his equality to the Father. And by going to the Father, what's going to happen to Jesus because of his faithfulness in his humiliation? Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So why does he say that the disciples should have rejoiced because he's going to his Father? Why, why does he say this? Well, let me give you some complex reasons that the disciples won't yet have grasped, and then I'm going to give you two simple reasons that they should have gotten and that they easily could have grasped. Let me give you some complex reasons that they should be thrilled about the coming ascension of Christ into heaven. His ascension would end the self-limitation of Christ. He would end his self-limitation. No longer would his glory be veiled and hidden. He would never suffer again. Another good reason, it was the moment of Christ's exaltation. It was the moment of Christ's exaltation. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 says, And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That's when Christ was exalted. If you're my friend and I become the king of something, you should be happy for me. And that's what he's saying to them. There's another complex reason. It marked the beginning of resurrected humanity entering heaven. This is the first time that a resurrected human being, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, has now entered into heaven in a glorified body. Another reason they should have been glad, it began Christ's ministry of intercession. It began his ministry of intercession when he ascended into heaven Hebrews 7.25, 1 John 2.1 says that he now continually intercedes for us. He is pleading our case before the Father. We never say that our salvation is secure because we're somehow on, on spiritual heavenly autopilot. Your salvation is secure because Jesus keeps it secure every minute of every day. His ascension marked the sending of the Holy Spirit. It marked the sending of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 7, Jesus said it was to the disciples' advantage that he go away. He said, if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. His ascension also indicated the time that Christ would give spiritual gifts. These are gifts of men to lead the church and gifts of serving abilities within the church. 
This also marks the time that Jesus went to prepare a place for us. Heaven now becomes much closer, much more real. John 14, 2, he's gone to prepare. And his ascension gives mirror image pictures to us of his second coming. If you wonder what the second coming of Jesus Christ is like, just hold up a mirror to his ascension. Acts 1, verse 11, the angels told the disciples that Jesus would return the same way he came. How did he... How did he go? Gradually, visibly, bodily. How do, you, how do we look for the coming of Christ the same way he went? Now, those are complex reasons, and I don't think we're going to hold the disciples to understanding that and grasping that. We barely grasp that, and we have all of the New Testament to help us understand this. But there are two simple reasons that they should have been happy for him. They should have rejoiced. The first one, they should have been happy for Jesus to go to heaven. I mean, why wouldn't we be happy for somebody to go to heaven? They should have been happy for him that all of his suffering would be finished. And the second reason is they should be happy for Jesus to go to heaven because of what he's doing there. Because of what he's doing there. Look at verse 3 all the way at the beginning of the chapter. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That because Jesus has promised that when he goes away, he will commence preparing heaven for their arrival and their arrival is guaranteed, I will come again and I will take you to myself. This means in the midst of whatever's happening in life, you can think on heaven, you can ponder heaven, you can study heaven, you can anticipate heaven. In other words, you are fully authorized and fully encouraged to have sweet dreams of our heavenly future. It is completely legitimate for you to say, today is going so badly, I'm just going to take five minutes and think about heaven. Isn't that great? And the longer you live, you're going to go from five minutes to five hours. Let me give you a fourth element of a metaphorical night's, peaceful night's sleep. And you have to have this. A strong guardian. A strong guardian. Lying down and sleeping in peace is dependent on the knowledge that you are safe as you do so. It's one thing to sleep in a bed. It's another thing to sleep on the the rim of a volcano. They're slightly different. In Psalm 4, King David could have been attacked at any moment, and yet in his trust in the Lord, he slept peacefully. And like David, we have a strong guardian making our peaceful heart possible. What is this strong guardian that Jesus promises? Verse thirty. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He said he will no longer talk much with them. This speech is drawing to a close, but he's given ample warning as chapters 15 and 16 are still coming, plus the high priestly prayer of of chapter 17, but compared to three and a half years of ministry, he's just about done. And ominously, he says, the ruler of this world is coming. He's speaking of Satan coming after him. This is the second time, by the way, that Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That through the cross of Christ, the ruler of this world, Satan, will eventually be cast out. He'll be judged. He'll be denigrated. He'll be humiliated. He'll be cast into the lake of fire. Now, we made the case back in chapter 13 that Satan did not want Jesus to get all the way to the cross. Satan tried on at least two occasions to keep Jesus from the cross, not push him to it, 
at the temptation of Christ, he offered Jesus wealth and riches in lieu of going to the cross. And then we also saw when Peter told Jesus that he should not go to Jerusalem to die, Jesus said, Satan, get behind me. Stop trying to keep me from the cross. But it seems now that Satan is betting that Jesus will fail the humiliation and the torture and the reality of the cross when that is presented right before him. Satan's betting that Jesus will bail out. And he'll say, I can't do this. But Jesus had sent Judas away. Judas is now filled with the power of Satan, chapter 13, verse 27. And even as the disciples are enjoying the Passover meal, Judas has gone to gather the necessary forces to come and arrest Jesus. But did you notice something? We've got to extract this from the text. Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. But what has Jesus just promised? Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. That the peace of Christ transcends the power of this world. The peace of Christ defeats the power of this world. The peace of Christ overcomes the power of this world. As a matter of fact, the end of John 16, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And so we live in victory. We live in the world, but the ruler of this world cannot touch your spiritual safety. Yes, he can try to deceive. Yes, he can try to harm. Yes, he can try to inflict pain. And yes, God might allow Satan in his providence to do something trivial like killing you. But he can't touch you. He can't touch you. And here's the wonderful irony. This strong guardian. It's as if you're surrounded by all things evil, all things wicked, all things sinful, all things hard, all things painful. And yet in the middle of that chaos, in the, in the eye of the storm, where there's peace, you commune with God, you fellowship with God because you have peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or to put it as King David put it, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my what? Enemies. You have a strong guardian in your peaceful rest in Christ. Let me give you another element of the metaphorical peaceful night's sleep. Clean covers. Clean covers. If you've raised little boys, you probably know what it's like to take the sheets off their bed and have a bucket of sand come out. Debris, Legos, socks, I mean, all kinds of things. There are more things in the bed than could actually fit in their closet. It's amazing how that works. And why is this? Well, little boys hide dirt between their toes, and there's a physiological phenomenon in which they release it all in the bed. I don't know why that is. It just happens. But the opposite of that, freshly washed sheets and clean covers just welcome you into a restful state. What are the clean covers that the Lord offers that give peace? In the verse 30, still speaking of Satan, he has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Satan has no claim on him. In Greek, literally, he's got nothing on me. There's no accusation that Satan can make. There's no evidence of wrongdoing. Satan can only have claim on a sinner, and Jesus has never sinned. Satan is utterly powerless before Christ, and, and Jesus has proven his sinlessness because, verse 31, he does as his Father commands. He's perfectly submissive to all that the Father says in every respect. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. 
Now, contrary to the popular notion that God's focus is primarily on you, Jesus asserts that he does what the Father commands him to bring fame and honor before the world to show that he loves his Father. This is the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus just says the phrase, I love my Father. He says he obeys him a lot, but here he gets very vulnerable and says, I want everyone to know that I love my Father. And so Satan has no claim on him. He has no authority. Satan has no advantage whatsoever over Christ because he's sinless, he's holy, he's absolutely without reproach, he's untouchable. Now, this is very interesting to us because over 90 times in the New Testament, the Christian is said to be in Christ, in Christ. Now, follow my logic here. You could almost open to any random page from the book of Romans on and just put your finger down and you're going to be within three inches of the phrase in Christ. And if you're in Christ, guess what? 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that you are identified with Christ in the roll books of heaven. It means that the righteous life that Christ has lived has been credited to your account. Or if I could put it this way, it means that you've been covered in the cleanliness and the perfection of Jesus. You can lie down and sleep in peace because you have the clean covers of atonement. The clean covers of justification before God as being forgiven and cleansed and washed and renewed, recreated in the image of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, Satan's got nothing on you either. Those are your clean covers. Romans 8.33 says that no one will bring a single charge against you before God. And yes, Satan will accuse you when you sin. 1 John 2, 1, though, says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is saying that sin is paid for. This is your child because of me, because of my work. He's in me. He belongs to me. He's mine. Or to put it this way, it is the Lord Jesus saying, I have covered him in my righteousness. One more element of the metaphorical peaceful night's sleep, and those of you who are Picture things in your mind. You're wondering when we get to this. You have to have this. It's a soft pillow. A soft pillow. What is the soft pillow which cushion, cushions our head and brings that serenity in rest? It's the ability to have peace despite being in the middle of terrible and trying circumstances. There, there's only one understanding that can give that peace. There's only one truth that can really give that peace. There's only one pillow that allows that kind of rest, and that is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Jesus has been telling them of calm and peace and making glorious promises to them. And all of a sudden, at the end of verse 31, he says, rise, let us go from here. This isn't a somber, please rise, so that we might depart these premises. He's not saying that. He's saying, get up. Let's get out of here. Why? He just said it. The ruler of this world is coming. But you see, Jesus has unfinished business. He has more to teach them. He must enter into his time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before willingly subjecting himself to his arrest. Now, some say that Jesus was announcing that they would be leaving soon and that the rest of John 15 through 17 still happens in the upper room. 
And John 18 does say when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. But I think there's a very valid argument that they did leave the upper room at the end of chapter 14. They made their way through the city. And chapter 18 says that when he went out, they went out across the brook Kidron where there was a garden. So I tend toward the view that Jesus and the disciples departed right when Jesus said, rise, let us go from here. They had already sung their closing hymn. They had finished their meal, and now it's time to get out. In either case, whether they're leaving right then or they're about to leave in a few moments, a major change is getting ready to happen. New and terrible things are about to happen in the next few hours. If you've ever been in that position to receive bad news, literally from one minute to the next, your life is completely turned upside down. Everything looks different. Everything feels different. New and bad things are about to happen. Jesus will take them to the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll tell them with urgency to watch and to pray that his soul is burdened. They'll see him come back and they'll, they'll see blood on him from the intensity of his prayers. They'll see a mob of temple guards coming to arrest Jesus. They'll even briefly attempt to fight back. And then, according to the prediction of the Lord himself in John sixteen thirty two, they'll desert Jesus. And as they're running away and as they're escaping into the darkness, I wonder about the thoughts that just a couple of hours ago we were in the upper room and we were enjoying a meal and Jesus was saying, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Their beloved Lord would be tortured and crucified and they'll be left seemingly without hope. So when Jesus said, get up, let's get out of here, then would come the test as to whether all the promises of peace are still true or not. But all these new and terrible things that were about to take place, they all took place according to plan. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Isaiah 53 already told us 700 years before the fact that the Savior would be treated like a criminal and he would be taken away, literally arrested. Zechariah 13, 7 predicted the temporary falling away of the disciples. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And of course, Jesus himself has already said time and time again that he would die and he would be raised. But even after the victory of resurrection, even after they saw for, for certain with their own eyes that he was alive, just 40 days later, Jesus would be gone and they would never see him again in this life. Listen, when you fully embrace, when you fully bow down, when you fully surrender to the sovereignty of God, what do we call that? We call that peace. Because all of a sudden, nothing can hurt you. And your head can sink into the soft pillow of God's total control. And so when you have blissful thoughts and a comfortable bed, sweet dreams, a strong guardian clean covers, and a soft pillow. Then you too can say with David, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I mean, after all, if you're intimately acquainted with the Savior, the God-man Jesus Christ, and he's known by a very famous royal name that he is the Prince of Peace, isn't he? Our Father, we thank you and praise you for the peace that is ours. 
Jesus left it with us, and he has given it to us. And on that basis, Lord, we, we claim it as ours because of your goodness and kindness. We praise you and thank you for the Spirit of God who gives us peace. And I would pray for a man or a woman here today who knows Christ and yet is struggling with deep anxiety and deep worry in some facet of life. I would pray, Lord, that they would breathe in the sweet air of the sovereignty of God and trust in you. And I pray that even this night, not a metaphorical night's sleep, but a real night's sleep, that they would lie down and sleep in peace. And Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is not at peace because they are still at war with God. They are still rebelling against the Lord and they have no peace and they should not have peace because God is at war with them. And so I pray, Lord, that they would come humbly to the Prince of Peace, to the Savior, and that they would acknowledge their sin and repent in humility. And that this very day, Lord, they would make peace with God because Jesus himself promised, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. We pray this and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.